You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Now it's time for my biannual reminder to put your brain in a bucket. A climbing helmet, that is. All the old reasons to not wear a helmet, even sport climbing, are gone. Too heavy? Not much heavier than that summertime wool beanie, bro. Too hot? Well, the thought of brain surgery should really make you sweat. Too lame? You're lame. You're lame. You're lame. As I've grown older, I've heard of too many injuries that could have been prevented with a helmet. Or that old line, man, I was lucky I was wearing a helmet. Don't be lucky. Be prepared. Be prepared. Of course, Black Diamond can help you out. From the high-end and lightweight vision helmet to the burly old-school half-dome, Black Diamond has a full line of helmets at all weights, protection levels, and price points to outfit you for the mountains, cragging, and dare I say bouldering, you maverick? Why wait to get a new cooler, better helmet? I mean, it's just your brain, right? Wrong. Wrong. Go to Black Diamond Equipment to check out their high-tech helmets, and I'd love you to support BD, who supports this free podcast you're listening to right now. But if nothing trips your fancy from Black Diamond, go somewhere else and find a helmet you can wear proudly, even on that 510 warm-up you've done a thousand times. Buy it. Wear it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Well, howdy, Chris. Y'all thirsty? No, I'm good, Yonder. Catching anything? Mostly just the buzz. What brings you out to the old fishing hole? You know, I just wanted to say that when Yeti asked me to advertise for their Yonder water bottle, I was a little skeptical. A regular Nolfidian. You know, like what the heck am I going to say to get folks excited about a water bottle? Yep, could be dull as ditch water. And yet he has all those other great products, like awesome coolers, the stainless drinkware, and heck, he even got that bucket thing. <laughs> yeah, the bucket. But anyway, then I started using my own Yeti Yonder water bottle, and well, that cap you have that can open the fill hole and or the drink hole, it's pretty genius. The other day, I dropped ice and drink mix in the big hole, shook it up, and then I could easily drink out of the small hole without sloshing everything down my chin. No drinking problem here. You're lighter than stainless steel. I have been working out and BPA-free. I don't know what that means. And you have a clippable handle just right for climbers. Climbers need hydration more than most. Anyway, I'm sorry I thought you were some boring old water bottle yonder. You really are a better bottle. It's okay, Chris. People take water for granted all the time, right up until they ain't got none and their mouth's drier than a dead dingo's ukulele. Well, anybody you want can ogle my sweet curves at yeti.com or any fine outdoor establishment. Oh, fish on, brother. Reel it in easy, yonder. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where you playing in town? You playing here? We're doing the, uh... The Normo Dome, whatever it is, it's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. Out. I'll say, you really should. The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a freight end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, La Sportiva, and with support from Maxim Ropes. Maxim has been keeping the normal cast off the deck since 2012. And now, we can also thank the chill folks at Yeti. 
And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and entry Normo at checkout to get a great deal on great coffee and to support the Enormacast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is... August 23rd, about 12.30 p.m. here in Colorado, 2023, and this is episode 269 of the Enormacast, a conversation with rock climber Tyler Caro. Caro? Caro. Caro? One of those. A little business to take care of first. As many of you longtime listeners know, a good friend of mine, Jeff Jackson, infamous Jeff Jackson of the wonderful stories of climbing in Mexico and shape-shifting horse people. I think that was episode 19, but Jeff's a good friend of mine, relocated some years ago to Maui. And as you guys know, unless you're living under a rock, literally or figuratively, there's been horrible fires in Maui, destroying a whole town, displacing a lot of people, killing a lot of people. And uh, even though that's kind of slipped from the news already, the news cycle moves so fast, obviously those people are still very much in need. There's a fund set up by climbers. Jeff Jackson sent me this uh, this link. It's not for climbers, but it's kind of just a conduit that's going through the climbing community to some aid organizations that they've vetted and are ready to give money for. So if you're thinking about the community in Maui or even the climbing community in Maui, and you're wondering what to do still, or you've forgotten about it, and this is a good reminder, uh, maybe you can go over and donate a few bucks. Remember that if a bunch of people donate a little, that's a lot. You know, just skip the apps next time you go out to eat. Give that money to uh, somebody in Lahaina that's in need. You don't need the calamari this time around, right? That's all it really comes down to. Skipping the calamari could really help somebody out. Or give them the cost of the whole meal. And you guys stay home and eat a frozen pizza. You can find this all by searching at GoFundMe for the Global Climbing Community Fund for Maui Fire Victims. I'm sure any number of combinations of those words will get you there. I'm also put a link on the show page. The show page. Lots of podcasts talk about show pages. I don't really, but it'll be over there. I'm also going to throw something up on Instagram so you can go back and search my Instagram. Anyway, that comes down the pike from Jeff Jackson over in Maui as a way to help out the people there through the climbing community. Okay, other news. I have committed to go back to the Michigan Ice Festival. I was there some years ago, and Bill uh, sent me an email and said, hey, do you want to come back? And um, I said, sure. I got Midwest roots. I can maybe combine it with a visit with my parents who live up in northern Wisconsin. Anyhow, just announcing that I will be at the Michigan Ice Festival, the dates are the 7th to the 11th of 2024. I am not exactly sure what I'm going to be doing there. Bill told me some ideas. Um, I've forgotten what they are. We'll work that out a little bit later on, but um, I'd love to see you there. I think I have a wonderful, very avid Midwest following here on the Enormacast, and um, it's a good chance to connect and get out of my little bubble here in Western Colorado, my wonderful bubble full of rock climbing, not full of ice climbing. But you know, Michigan, the dead of winter. What could be better? (laughs) 
Okay, on to this interview with Tyler. Uh, Tyler Caro is this guy who just popped on the scene, as far as I could tell, about four years ago. And he's been getting a ton of shit done in Patagonia, in Yosemite, all over the Sierras, all over the world, frankly. Wadi Rum, where else? I don't know. We get to it all in this podcast. It's interesting, though, because Tyler is this incredibly accomplished climber, um, built entirely of stoke. And also some uh, engineering acumen that's uh, kept him safe in the mountains. But uh, in some ways, this is uh, one of those every person interviews. A little bit in a weird way. Even though Tyler's ability pushes him past what we'd mostly consider just an everyday climber, he comes from uh, pretty normal roots in climbing. And he's not heavily sponsored. He's not got an official sponsor at all, though he's gotten some help on a few trips from the likes of Patagonia and I believe Rab. Correct me if I'm wrong, Rab. Yeah, not not a lot of uh not a lot of professional end of things and yet he's accomplished so much as uh just a climber, you know, saving money at jobs that he's had and going out and getting it done. Of course he does have some obvious advantages and privileges in life, middle class upbringing, college education but nothing that's terribly out of reach for a lot of people. And uh, maybe a little window into possibilities for, for some of you out there who dream of climbing in the greater ranges while still having a life back home. All right, let's get to it. A conversation with rock climber, something of an alpinist, rock alpinist. That's a specific Patagonia genre. Anyway, let's talk to Tyler Carroll. Imagine a time before the Sportiva TC Pro, before the solution, even, dare I say, before the Mira. It was a libidinous time of skin-tight lycra and the shortest shorts ever conceived. Meanwhile, Sportiva was already at the height of their powers even then. Imagine, if you will, Ron Kauk flexing in his blue and fuchsia megas, Francois Legrand floating in his ridiculously tight kendos, and Heinz Mariocker, um, Mariockering and his Mariockers. Now, Sportiva is celebrating those heady years with a revival of their Climbing to the Moon logo and a special limited edition TX4 approach shoe in the fantastic colors that defined an era. The TX4 remains legendary for both its ruggedness and its climbing power. And now, Sportiva is building the TX4 on a resolvable platform to get even more life from your favorite approach shoe. So check out all of Sportiva's decades of innovation at Sportiva.com or your local shop and step to the moon in a pair of better-than-ever retro TX4s. You know, I, I was actually sitting here watching your videos, you know, and then I'm, I'm like going a little bit deeper because I'm like, I don't, you know, this guy, to me, you appeared on the radar for my purview anyway um, with the Golden Gate thing with Amity. Um, and I talked to her about that as well. And, you know, I was like, oh, I don't know anything about this guy. Like, I'm really going in blind to this one. You know, you've got your YouTube channel and it's it's heavily subscribed to and, and you've got a ton of content on there. But I'm like digging around for like, where did this guy come from? Who is he? Like, on a personal level, I just couldn't find a lot of stuff out there like uh, like a deep profile or anything like that. So I, I don't know. That's kind of what I'm here for. I'm I'm. I'm like, I want to go beyond these videos because the videos, I see this like hyper competent, you know, 
calm, competent climber. And, and even in, you know, some of the stuff where you maybe didn't achieve your goal, it's still done with this like incredible level of competence and you come across in your element, you know, I, I, I was even surprised at some of these multi-day things where you looked like you hadn't even been up there that long. So I'm, I'm like kind of trying to, I want to try to dig around for this, like where this comes from, where this wellspring of sort of competence and ability to operate in that, in that, you know, especially these Patagonia sort of things, um, the way that you do. And if you, if you think of it as an operation or if you, or if it's just part of your personality to be able to operate up there. I I do have a brain that kind of, I guess, pushes me to want to become really competent. So when I started climbing, I mean, I started climbing in, I guess, 2017 uh, at a climbing gym. Didn't know a single person who climbed. I paid like $100 for a class to teach me how to lead belay in a gym because I couldn't find anyone to teach me and thought that was probably the smartest thing to do. And But immediately after, I just started reading books. Like I read a bunch of Andy Kirkpatrick books about big wall climbing. I read how to alpine climb, how to build anchors. and this was kind of before YouTube, like YouTube climbing videos were all over the place. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but I watched all the videos I could, how to belay from above and just got like super infatuated by the whole climbing thing. And that's kind of where it started. Uh, and then eventually I had a good friend who had a boyfriend and he took me out sport climbing for the first time. And yeah, I just kind of began there. And I think. I just like slowly, slowly, slowly continued to spend as much time as I could outside climbing and eventually was trying to just convince my friends to climb with me outside. And all of my first big wall experiences were with people who who had zero climbing experience to some degree, uh, which was like kind of a funny situation. We like, you know, lots of epicking and good adventures. But yeah, I think I think really like to answer your question, it's just like stoke. I just did my research, put a lot of time in and was really stoked and yeah, just became competent as a result of of those three things. You know, you just you said slowly 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 I did this and I'm going to have to disagree with you at that point. Um because if you started climbing in 2017 and now what well, we're we're 6 years later, um 7 years later however however you want to count it, but it was a couple three years ago already that you guys were up on Golden Gate, like I said, when I noticed you, so to speak, um, which sounds kind of like cocky or elitist, like, oh, I noticed this young climber, you know, it's like, no, I just, you know, I hadn't seen your name and I'm not actually that connected. So that's not saying much that I, I happen to notice you, but that's a pretty fast progression in my opinion. And I think a lot of people's opinion. So let me go back to the, to the engineer part of things, because this also, if you're 29 now, 2017, I mean, you were already in sort of your early 20s by this point. You weren't some like kid that went to a birthday party or whatever that I hear so often these days about, you know, really good climbers. Yeah. Well, I did go to a few birthday parties uh, <laughs> and, you know, live. Oh, never I, mind. <laughs> yeah, I, did. I, I had, I had some, some uh, gym climbing experiences as a kid and, and mm. actually had a birthday party at a climbing gym, you know, way okay. back in the and day. Where are we but talking about? I grew up in New York. Located? Oh, okay. suburbs suburbs of new york city i live okay. like the classic uh new york suburban life very i don't know um far off from the life i currently live over on the west coast but 
Uh, yeah, I had some exposure to it, but I never got that into it. Never climbed outside. And then in college, I got I was always into skiing. That was kind of my thing as a kid. Um, growing up, my parents were big skiers and kind of took me out and mostly inbounds. And um, I got pretty into backcountry skiing in college and then after college. And that kind of pushed me into this world of ski mountaineering. And I didn't really know much about climbing, but through through the backcountry skiing and ski mountaineering, I kind of realized quickly that I should probably supplement my skiing skills with climbing skills. And so I was like, oh, it'd be cool to join a gym, meet some people. I moved to San Francisco after college and thought it'd be like a good way to meet people and also a, like a fun new activity to get into, mostly to benefit skiing and just like learn some rope skills. And I had this mentality. I'm like, man, it'd be sweet to go climb 5'8 in the Alpine. And that was always my like interest. I had no... I would, I remember like seeing people bouldering or hanging on hangboards and had like genuinely no desire to get into that world. Like I thought it was silly to pull hard moves with your fingers. And I was like, I just want to go out and have fun and climb long routes in the Alpine, you know, below five, nine. And so that was, that was how I got into it. Um, I guess through skiing. And then as I started climbing more and more, I kind of realized that it was way more fun than skiing. And now I barely ski and pretty much spend all my time climbing. Where was your backcountry skiing going on? Like what part of the country were you doing that kind of stuff? Uh, mostly the Eastern Sierra. So I spent a lot of time in Mammoth, uh, a lot of time driving from LA and San Francisco where I was living to to drive up to the East side and skiing a lot of the classic lines out there. Um, and that got me super inspired by those big mountains. I still think the Eastern Sierra is probably one of, I mean, low key, I think it's the best place to backcountry ski, not necessarily for snow conditions, but in regard to like the quantity and quality of terrain out there, it's pretty incredible. And so that caught me, that got me into it. And then living up in San Francisco, I got out to Tahoe a little bit, but yeah, the East side is definitely has my heart, um, for climbing and skiing. Why did you end up in in San Francisco after college? I mean, where did you go to college and then was it job related or, you know, what 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 made you switch coasts as it were? Yeah, um, I well, I know. was actually I was actually born in just north of San Francisco and my whole family was back here. Uh they moved like I was always kind of the California kid in New York and I only applied to colleges in California. And then went to school for civil engineering in LA uh, and then got some like very, you know, basic corporate job working at some civil engineering company right out of college and absolutely hated my life. I was super confused and going through a pretty serious existential crisis. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. Was like pretty unhappy. And I actually got fired for my first job out of college, which is kind of a wild story that we won't necessarily get into. But I literally got a call maybe three days after I got fired by a friend who I didn't know super well. I think he was a skiing friend and he's like, hey man, I have a campsite at Upper Pines in Yosemite Valley. You want to come out and go rock climbing? And at the time, I guess I'd climbed Snake Dyke the week before. That was my first climb in Yosemite Valley. And I went out to, I went out to the Yosemite again and climbed Nutcracker and after six and Bishop's Terrace and Royal Arches and, you know, all those classic, all those classic routes. And 
I was like, this is the sickest thing ever, um, you know, but I went back to my more traditional life. I got another job uh, working in the Bay. As an engineer, I was designing modular high rises, which is actually like a pretty cool scene because I was kind of like working for this company that was trying to figure out a way to provide housing for cheaper and kind of like mass produce, mass produce buildings in urban environments. And I really liked my job, but I got so, so psyched on rock climbing that I decided to build a van, quit my job and just pursue that full time. So I think in around 2019, September 2019, uh, I just took off and yeah, bought a van, you know, spent three months building it out while working full time and then hit the road, uh, very much to my parents' dismay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's drill back down. I mean, I don't know if you want, you seem to want to not want to tell a story getting fired. That's fine. But, um, (laughs) no, I'm, I'm I'm happy. I mean, now that you mentioned it, essentially, essentially I had a, I had a one year review like my, I worked there for one year and I had a review with my two bosses and, mm-hmm. uh, I called out my, my boss pretty hard for not necessarily being what I thought was a great boss and in a professional way, but yeah, it didn't, it didn't go super well. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I just, as, as soon as you talk about the the review, I just had an office space sort of thing go into my head. Have you seen office space? I haven't, but I could oh my imagine. God. All right. I, I don't watch, I haven't watched a TV show in, since I was in high school. Well, that's, you're confusing it with The Office. Office Space oh, is a film. Okay. Anyway, yeah, that's the we'll movie. Take, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I also, I'm pretty uncultured with regarding movies and TV. So anyway, you call your boss out, you get fired, and then there's this three-day period, um, it sounds like, before this cat calls you. What did, you know, when you said you were having sort of this existential crisis, it's just general bummed out or or like... How did that manifest itself? I'd say just super confused. I, right. I mean, like I went to I went to school. You know, I think like I'd lived this life where I had a lot of I had a lot of fun in high school. I had a great time in college, and and then I was like, cool. I guess next up is this working thing. That's what you know. My parents told me as a kid, and kind of just like didn't necessarily rebel too hard. So I went with that, and then I just I had a really difficult time accepting that future and i kind of looked at a lot of my coworkers and you know people who are older than me and the various jobs in the civil engineering field and was like this is not does this is this is not fulfilling and doesn't look fulfilling and i just didn't really feel like my future was there and i just thought there had to be another way and so i you know i just i overthink things pretty pretty hardcore in general and just for like that whole year i was super in my head and unsure of what I wanted to do with my life and wanting to figure it out and wanting to find some sort of fulfilling career and fulfilling future. But yeah, I just didn't have any answers. And that's why, that's why it was like so existential. So, you know, there was a mention in another thing that I read, I think it was actually on your LinkedIn. I know this is how <laughs> you read my I LinkedIn. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's just like I, I Google it and there's these different things. And, yeah. 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 Um, just like something about, no, actually it wasn't. It mentioned a three-year period and that you're, and I know you're now working again. And so you're kind of like, you went on the road and, you know, actually when we got in touch this most recent time, we joked about how like it had come to a halt or whatever. (laughs) Um, I asked you where your trust fund was, but you know, this three-year period. So you leave after this other job, you, you decide that even though it's a little more interesting than the one you had, you're like, I'm still 
going to follow this other dream that I sort of realized in that time you had with your friend in, in Yosemite. But then you have this sort of, you know, you had this gym background. So what what made you sort of make the step, you know, not towards necessarily like super high performance, sport climbing, bouldering, whatever, towards like these this kind of adventure end of things. Not that you're a slouch at rock climbing by any means, but, you know, you're your career of the last few years has been just one kind of bigger adventure after another. So what drew you to that? Like what was in your, in your outlook or in your personality that, that made you go down that path? That's a hard one to answer. I think, I think maybe it started with the ski, the ski thing. Like I, I love these big backcountry ski missions and you know, like I guess when I first started climbing, I had, I didn't really have an interest in big wall climbing or I was just interested in the Alpine. That was like my main thing. I was like, oh man, I love, I love snow. I love like being in these wild places and having these crazy experiences with friends. And for me, climbing has always been about like partnerships and beautiful places and like my experiences out on these big adventures and less so the performance aspect. It's kind of funny. I've always like I guess I've just struggled with motivation to climb hard necessarily. Like I don't really feel it. Um, I still think like I, I haven't, I think I've climbed like one pitch of 513 since I've climbed Golden Gate. Um, and still to date, the most number of 513 pitches I've ever climbed in my life are on El Cap. Like I've never, I just don't really have a desire to climb hard. I mean, I'm bolder socially, but I just, I prefer climbing in wild, beautiful places with good friends and good people and, you know, interesting conversations on the approach and interesting conversations at Belay's. Like that's, that's what motivates me more so than climbing super hard. So I think, yeah, like pretty, pretty quickly after starting to get into climbing, I kind of recognize that. And then now that I've been climbing for a decent bit of time, I just, yeah, I've just gone with it. And there's definitely external pressures. I feel like there's a huge, there's like a huge, uh, uh, I guess like it seems like the climbing community values climbing quite hard, obviously, like everyone's interested in performing at a high level and training. There's so much emphasis on training these days. And um, I do, you know, it's fun to climb. It's fun to climb hard grades every once in a while, but I definitely find myself trying to take a little bit of a different path than I think the typical climber these days from, from that respect. Yeah, that's fascinating because I mean the um you know going back to the Golden Gate thing like I th- I thought I was just so enormously impressed with all that um with both you and Amity and and to explain to f- folks who who you know missed this or it's it's old news now things travel go fast but you know you and Amity Warm decided to climb Golden Gate ground up um, without previewing pitches, um, not doing sort of the more typical thing these days of wrapping in and working it a whole bunch before you leave the ground and, and you guys sent. And, um, I mean, it's fascinating to find out that that was like this sort of pinnacle of 513 for you and that you went up there and in that environment were able to perform without necessarily the, the background of, of a lot of practice on that level of climbing. And, and it, it's like an audacious thing to do. And, and I think it's kind of lost right now that the way big walls get done are not like that. We kind of have this paradigm that we're sort of stuck in the past where that's just the way people do things and that's just not done. And I just remember being so enormously impressed with that. I mean, what was in your, 
game plan or your mind as to why you skipped the, why you, you know, or not skipped, why you decided to do it in that way and, and what make, made you think you could? Yeah, well, I didn't think I could, I guess. That's the first, that's the first <laughs> thing. I went up there like fully expecting to not send the thing. But one, I guess when you say, when you were referring to skip, I assume you meant like maybe skip the free rider. Uh, but no, no, I meant like, I, I, I would actually rephrase that. Um, just not doing the, the, like, I'm going to make sure I've got this on lock before I ever do all the hard part, which is to haul my shit up there. Oh, cause I, I think the, the main reason is because then you like, you essentially you're just cheating yourself out of the adventure. I mean, half right. the, for me, for me, half the fun of climbing is like going for the onsite and, you know, keeping things a surprise. No, it's 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 just enjoyable to kind of like retain the adventure. And I think, yeah, I think climbing is losing that a little bit. But for me, when I have the opportunity to, you know, climb a big wall, I'd rather just go from the ground and not repel in. And I also don't have like I didn't have a strong desire to send. I'm not like, oh, man, I, you know, like my my career relies on this or like my my happiness for the next month relies on me sending this route. And if I don't send it, I'm going to be super bummed and complain and you know <laughs> bitch about it to my friends like it was just i could have i could have not sent and i probably would have had a pretty comparable amount of fun on the route i just asked amity kind of out of the blue if she wanted to climb it i think i asked her in like two days later we we were hauling uh we had, i asked her and then i think we had like one day of prep and then one day of pre-hauling and then we were out the next day but when we when we started it i was like all right i just want to send all the pitches up to the 513 like i would be psyched to send all the 511 uh and then you know if i fell on the the 513 pitches like i wouldn't be bummed so that was kind of my objective going into the route and and then that first night when we tried like the first crux pitch the the down climb i couldn't do it i couldn't figure it out at all and i was like i'd fully given up i was like okay cool like that's it i'm done i'm just gonna support amity Mm-hmm. And she she couldn't send it that first night either. And she's I remember she was on the phone with uh, with Connor, her husband. He like the service was is like semi marginal in the alcove, and she's reaching out to like every climber she knows who sent the thing, like trying to get all the beta dialed. And sure, and I'm like I'm like you know sleeping and like not <laughs> just like not caring at all. And she's like super motivated. <laughs> um, and honestly, like I I genuinely credit climbing with Amity for enabling me to send that route because sure we had this incredible partnership like to date one of the most incredible climbing partnerships i've ever had on a wall i think i had i kind of like i was pretty dialed at wall climbing at the time and had the logistics pretty sorted and kind of like led us through all that and she she's just so motivated it's it's kind of ridiculous like her motivation to climb hard and like her try hard abilities are super super unique uh and it kind of it kind of like enabled me to do the same because I I'm not you know if I can't climb a pitch the first time I'm like ah oh, whatever like I don't really want to try it again like I mm-hmm. when I go to the crag to go sport climbing if I fall on something I'd rather just do the pitch to the right of it or to the left of it instead of trying it again but she she like you know I, I like brushed my first hold ever on Golden Gate and brought two pairs of shoes up there and like you know tried the pitches with different pairs of shoes and like you know use the full you know hard climbing tactics to actually send the thing and yeah and it worked out but like it was super surprising and um and yeah quite shocking i mean what did she what did she say to you to get you to start trying it over and over again 
mean, and how many times did you sort of have to try some of those hard pitches? Uh, the, the down climb. So we like got, we got to the alcove in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. I think we tried the down climb in the evening. We both couldn't do it. And then the next day she did it like first go. I think we both kind of like messed around and then we both pretty much did it first go, which was okay, like shocking. You know, like after a like initial, just like suss out the the pitch in the morning, and then mm-hmm. on the move, she did it super fast, and then it took me, like she did it the first day, and then it took me a second day, and I think it took me like two tries the second day to do that, and then the Golden Desert, we both climbed that thing first time. That's definitely not five thirteen. It's like for sure. I'd say it's for sure easier. Um, and then. The A5 Traverse, uh, I think I did that. I did it relatively quick. And then I was actually, I was super psyched. And Amity took a little bit longer. Um, and I remember she was like all bummed that she she didn't send it like the the first session that we really gave it a go. And I was like so excited that she didn't send it because I knew she would send it because she's like right. an absurdly strong climber, like way stronger than me. And I'm like, oh, she's she's going to send it. But now... We had a whole extra day to just hang out on Tower to the People. And I was like, this is the best. Like, we could just hang out on this incredible ledge. And, like, I was just dancing, you know, on our little G7 pod, just blasting music. And I was, like, having some of the best times of my life up there. Yeah, so you are, I mean, are you able to operate up there, like, anxiety-free? I mean, like, because, you know, notably, uh, I and this has been mentioned ad nauseum on the podcast because it was like the last cool thing I did, maybe ever, maybe will be the last cool thing I did, was climb Golden Gate, I don't know, some years ago. Also ground up, also with no intention of sending other than, again, kind of the the same operation you had in your mind. Like, it'd be great if I sent all the 5.11 and and there's a few 5.12 pitches. Like, that'd be cool. And then I'll check out the rest of it. But I was actually really, I don't know, I was really anxious up there um just about getting through i mean we had we had a lot of bad weather that didn't help but i mean are you operating up there where you're just like you know what's the worst that could happen we're gonna we're gonna get to the top one way or the other um and and maybe you know you did the ultimate like free of pressure send or did you start to feel the pressure up towards the top uh yeah in general i'm pretty good at not having any anxiety on walls like i i feel like compared to a lot of climbers i'm like I don't feel the pressure to send, and mm-hmm. I also just I think I could handle myself pretty pretty well with exposure and kind of being in crazy places um, high up there. But I did definitely feel some pressure, you know. After you like send a couple of the crooks pitches, you're suddenly like, oh shit! Like I <laughs> like I gotta you know I gotta keep my myself together and you know perform, um, which I. I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it in a way. Like I like maybe one of the reasons I haven't really like tried much performance climbing after. I think I don't really like that that stress in a way. Like I enjoy right. I enjoy romping in the alpine and you know cl- like pushing myself on that front and um I consider myself more of an endurance athlete than than like a I don't know, hard climbing athlete. Um and I I kind of like enjoy those missions more where I'm out for a huge day and climbing for like 24 hours straight or something like that over trying to like ensure that I can climb some 513 pitch perfectly. Have you broken down and put at least a little training and climbing training into your, into your life or is it Uh, just all off the couch? 
I know I do. I actually hangboard now. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. I I have like a, so much I, pressure. Yeah. From, from all of social media to hangboard and exactly. to maybe climb on a moon board or a kilter board once in a while. Yeah. There's a there's a kilter. I live in Truckee, uh, right. in North Lake Tahoe, and there's a kilter board at the gym here, and I use that, and I, I hangboard at the gym, and honestly, I feel like it's more it's more for like maintenance, like mm-hmm. just maintaining my strength and getting getting way stronger but it seems to be working like i don't put i don't put very much effort into training but i i definitely spend way more time outside like i i go on bike rides and run and scramble a lot you know i have like little circuits i like to climb around town and um i prefer to do that over spending a bunch of hours in the gym so let's talk a little bit about your progression as a wall climber i mean you've come up in an era where like free climbing on big walls is maybe du jour, but it's also, it's also just more, I don't even want to say popular. It's just, people are sort of more capable. I think we've had a lot of sort of um, doors kicked in by people like the Hubers and and whatnot that could show us what could be done up on these walls, even in Patagonia by a, a lot of other names. I actually, you know, those guys have also done that down there. Let's talk a little bit about your progression. I mean, do you have like the complete shit storm big wall experience back there in your past somewhere or was it a pretty you know smooth sailing from one thing to another the first time i ever climbed el cap um i i went with a buddy who had never climbed outside before i think he like sport climbed outside once before he's a really good surfer and like just he was a cool dude and it was with him and then another friend and we had climbed we'd climbed the prow in two days and I made an attempt on Washington Column with another buddy, but you know it was kind of my other buddy who wanted to bail off Washington Column, and the prow went pretty smoothly. And then, uh, yeah, we tried Lurking Fear, and that was like totally a shit show. You know, like just everything went wrong. But we we got up it in in two days. I, I actually I forgot toilet paper, so I didn't bring enough toilet paper. But my buddy brought like an extra pair of boxers, so we we cut up the boxers on day two, and you nice. know use that. But yeah, it was it was a shit show, and then the first time the, I think literally. the next the next yeah literally a shit show. And then <laughs> my my next wall uh, was way more of a shit show. I climbed the nose with another really good friend who um who had climbed outside a handful of times only with me, and then this dude who this guy Keith who was uh, sixty seven at the time, um, and he was really cool. He's this guy who I met at the climbing gym in San Francisco, and we were all having drinks one day, and he's like, "Yeah, it's my life dream to climb El Cap," and I was like, "Let's do it." <laughs> and so we went out, and he was like, "I think his previous climbing experience was climbing Cathedral Peak and epicking on the Grac, that like three pitch five six in Yosemite." Yeah, that was a definitely a total shit show of a climb. We were pretty much mostly just trying to keep him alive on the wall, and I think uh, <laughs> I think he like lost his group. He actually got lost in the woods, like on the way to the nose. He started at some crazy hour, and my buddy dropped a Jumar on the approach, and we're like, Keith, go back and try to find the Jumar, and he like got fully lost for over an hour, and it was like over by over by Zodiac, and I had to like repel down from the pitch go get him bring him back over reclimb the pitch and then i think he dropped his grigri on the second pitch he dropped the stove higher up and uh yeah i i led and hauled every pitch except 
the Texas Flake because my other buddy, he didn't know how to place gear, but there's no gear to place on the Texas Flake. So I'm like, you could do this one. And he was like <laughs> fully gripped. <laughs> he, like, he brings it up all the time. He's like, that time you tried to kill me on the Texas Flake. Um, <clears throat> he doesn't That's really... complete engineer logic right there, though. Dude. Yeah, you, I mean, you're it just perfect. bringing it like. You don't know how to place gear. There's no gear. This is yeah, your bitch. <laughs> exactly. I was like, don't clip the bolt. Like, you know, because I read that you're not supposed to clip that bolt. And he was like super mad and didn't clip it. And totally grip. But but yeah, and Keith was a boss. I mean, this dude, this dude was like, you know, he it was super impressive to watch this guy who, you know, who's who's had like no experience get up the nose. And uh, the first day was a total shit show. He started at like 3 a.m., and I, I, th- I was like super dumb. I, we just hauled from the first pitch. Like we didn't do the pre-hauling thing to sickle. And so we like struggled through some like absolutely heinous hauling. Um, and I hauled all the pitches. So it, it sucked for me. We core shot our haul line, I think the very first day, but there was this other party that was epicking even more than us. And we ended up passing them on, on gear blaze. And we were like, we, I had my buddy rappel back down and asked for, they had, they brought three ropes. So we're like, yo, can we get your, your rope? We core shot our haul line. And so yeah, it was a total shit show, but ended up working out. And yeah, the last day we got to camp six and we met Lynn Hill and Nina Capres up there, which was super cool uh, and hung out with them. And they were like quite nice. And we woke up in the morning and Keith's like, yo, you guys, I uh, I fell off the ledge last night. <laughs> and I guess he like fully, <laughs> fully fallen off the, uh, we had one portal edge, a two person portal edge. And then he, he was just like, first i think he spent the first half of the night sleeping in between us on the ledge and then decided to go on some like sloping rock ledge and fell off and luckily <laughs> i made him wear a harness uh so he he lived he's <laughs> i still see him in the valley like every year it's it's awesome we had we had such a great experience but shortly after that i feel like i got pretty dialed and then started aid climbing way more and um just yeah just try to take as many chances i could to climb walls and you know bring friends up who weren't experienced and then climb with more experienced people and that was kind of like the way i got into climbing in patagonia and like you know the the greater places because it's true like really wall experience is i think the most um beneficial beneficial path or i guess beneficial training to to climbing some in some of those greater ranges right so i mean it's kind of like you you turn sort of mentorship on its head a little bit it sounds like it's like you can go out with way more experienced people than you, or you can put yourself as the most experienced person, you know, by a hair because you're climbing with these people that have no experience. <laughs> and then that forces you. I mean, shit, after you lead and haul the entire nose, you probably learned a few things, you know, yeah. about oh, yeah. hauling. You, and- <laughs> you learn, you learn way faster. I mean, right. it's, it's true. It's like, I feel like the best way to learn is to teach. And, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe you just, you know, a little bit, but then as you experience, you know, as you experience the wall, you're just forced to figure it out. And yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of, kind of how I taught myself to climb. But I honestly, I tried to find mentors. Like I like posted on Facebook groups and wrote on the messenger board and mission cliffs at the gym in San Francisco and like made an, made a legitimate effort to climb with people and reached out to random people on mountain project Mm -hmm. and got rejected occasionally. And you know, climb with some really terrible partners as well, um, who I didn't, you know, necessarily get along with. And 
you know, it was, it was a struggle. I, I made it, I made a pretty legit effort to climb with people, but it's kind of hard. And I just found mm-hmm. that the easiest way was just to take my friends and the people I enjoyed hanging out with up there. And if they weren't so experienced, I could just pretend that I was and they'd, they'd believe me. Well, that's an interesting tact because one of the things I noticed, again, just kind of looking through, especially this sort of three-year period or four-year period, um, three-year period kind of where you were just kind of going on one big mission after another, it seems like, um, with all different sorts of people. And so, you know, did climbing with, you know, like you just said, people you didn't get along with, people that you, you, you know, had to kind of take care of in a lot of ways, it sounds like a little bit. And um, I mean, what did that teach you about being a partner? Because it seems like you're a valuable partner and that you've, you know, hooked up with so many different really good climbers that wanted you on their team, so to speak, you know, from um, the, the folks you've climbed with in Patagonia to Cochimo to all these other places. So what did you learn about being a good partner from like your beginnings? Because it sounds like there was a bit of a learning period with that. I guess I just learned to keep the psych high. I think it's all about being positive when you're in a dangerous or absurd or crazy situation and mm-hmm. also being realistic and keeping expectations realistic. But really, I think what it comes down to being a good partner is just being someone who is positive, supportive, and um, stoked, stoked to be there. You know, it's there's nothing worse than having a partner you can you know like tell in the back of their head that they're not they're not stoked like they're just doing this because they feel like they have to or you know like it's been some objective but maybe they're having an off day and you kind of like you can kind of sense that that's like that's not an awesome awesome situation to be in but yeah i feel like uh i feel like i was super lucky i credit i mean i credit just like general psych for climbing as the main factor for me progressing relatively quickly and then also the main factor for getting me some of the partners who I've climbed with. And I think, yeah, I've been super fortunate. I mean, I, I, like I said, initially, I think my favorite part of climbing is, you know, just going out on adventures with partners and having really good conversations. And yeah, I think that's what it's about for me. It's not about finding the partner necessarily who's going to like be able to be the best performing partner for some sort of mission. And and I I do think there's a time and place for that. Like I definitely do scout out certain people for certain missions where I'm like, okay, I want to like do this very difficult thing at my limit. And I need to find the best potential partner for that, for that thing. But I still spend a ton of time climbing with people who maybe aren't necessarily like performing at the highest level, but I'd rather just spend time with them and, you know, enjoy a good conversation on the approach over sending necessarily like the hardest, the hardest route that I possibly could. Yeah. You've described an uh, interesting mix. I mean, when you talk about psych and ability, you know, it's like the guys like, uh, you know, Nico for and, and, and Sean and those guys seem to have like the full package there. <laughs> oh yeah. So to speak, have you, have you spent time with them? Uh, yeah. I spent some time with Sean and Patagonia right. this past season and, we emailed back and forth a good bit. Um, I kind of stole some beta from him uh, for the route in Torres del Paine that we climbed, mm-hmm. the South African route that him, Nico, and Sean, or sorry, and Ben freed back in 2009, I believe. So yeah, uh, th- I mean, those two dudes are like total, total inspirations. I think that that style, sending sending hard and also like just 
totally going on. They're there for the adventure and they're there for like this wild experience. And yeah, the, I think those guys are probably two of the most inspiring climbers of all time for me, for sure. And uh, they're like, they're in an entirely different league. I mean, the stuff they're doing is insane. And I think it's really hard to understand and grasp how far out it is. I personally find what they're doing is far more impressive than any sort of like, you know, the whatever it's up to these days, Boulder problem, or, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's like the mental strength required to, to push the limits that far out in wild places and, you know, have so much fun while doing it. I think that is yet to be a very, very special specific type of person to do that. Um, how's your, how are your mandolin skills? Do you play a, an <laughs> instrument? Cause I, I don't, I, I actually, it's kind of, it's kind of sad. Um, I really, I really need to up my musical talent. I have, I have zero. Um, my buddy Ima, um, he, he and I climb together pretty extensively. He's like probably been my main climbing partner for the past three years. And he, he's a really talented flute player. I mean, he plays a tin, he brings a tin whistle up with him on every climb attached to his chalk bag. And that thing's ripping all the time. Every, every repel or like, you know, anytime there's a little low moment on a wall, he's playing that thing. And yeah, he's always like, Oh, you got to learn the harmonica. You got to learn this. And I just, yeah, I haven't. I, I think I'm just, I've tried, but I'm, I'm pretty, pretty bad. Well, it's, I think it's always fascinating because, you know, you look at climbing and, and again, the greats of climbing, if you want to sort of distill it down to the people who made a name for themselves or her, you know, particular acumen. And it, it doesn't actually define itself in these kind of categories where we find art versus sort of, you know, left brain, right brain thing, because it's, you know, you've got someone like yourself and there's plenty of examples who bring an engineering, you know, background who bring a a background. Like you said, you read all the books, you, you made sure you knew all the systems and, and all those sorts of things. And you've achieved this amount and you've got the people on the other side who are the artistic, like, I'm not going to look at a book. I'm not, I'll just like fly by the seat of my pants. But the, the cool thing is, is like climbing can be approached from both those sides with the same amount of success. I think you don't have to be, I mean, we go through the whole seventies with the whole, you know, psychedelic age that everybody has to be a hippie to like, and be free of mind, you know, but that's not the archetype. It, 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 there is no sort of archetype. And, and that's one of the things I've always kind of loved about it is, you know, a lot of the early Himalayan climbers were scientists, you know, were these, these completely, you know, strict thinking sort of people. And they achieved these incredible things. And the hippies also came in and, you know, the seat of the pants people sort of did, but do you ever think about yourself like that? And in terms of like how, how your approach compares to someone like Sean or, or some of these other people? Yeah, totally. I think, I mean, I think also in addition to like the climbing part of climbing, one of the biggest appeals of climbing is the eclectic mix of people in the community. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's, yeah, I wouldn't have a show without that. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I love, it's incredible. It's like, I love going down to Joshua tree and, you know, (laughs) pretending to be a hippie for, for a moment. And, you know, I feel like it's, you know, you, you meet so many interesting people from so many different walks of life and, you know, I don't know, I'd hesitate to say that that climbing is necessarily super diverse, but I think from a personality standpoint, it really is. And you have, there's so many incredible artists who don't have the engineering mindset who are incredibly talented at climbing. And there's Mm -hmm. like, you know, people and 
tech, you know, who are like really into climbing on the other side of the spectrum. And I think that it's, uh, yeah, I feel like I'm, I definitely come at it from this, like, you know, I'm a civil engineer. I come at it from this engineering standpoint for sure. But I also, I feel like I do have this more like artsy Sean Nico side of looking at climbing from more of an adventurous component. I'm not like, okay, I need to complete these many pitches per day and do this. And I don't have Mm -hmm. like a checklist of things I need to do. I I feel like I have, I have my own, my own unique approach, but there's definitely your own alchemy, so to speak of, of what's important and, and what needs to get done versus what we can let go kind of a thing. Yeah, totally. So, um, let's go back to your chronology a little bit. What happened? I mean, you, you had, you know, I asked you about, I should shit, shit storm. I meant shit show. Uh, <laughs> either way, you know, what happened? Like, well, tell me about like the first few walls or, or adventures or whatever, where you were like, okay, I'm not out here just like winging it right now. Um, with this guy from the gym or whatever, you know, tell me about when you made that step of like, yeah, I, I'm, I've got this, I've got a handle on this and I can, I can go forward to sort of bigger objectives and kind of attempt my dreams, so to speak. Cause I think that's a, it's sort of a subtle moment in anyone's climbing career. But when you look up at something and instead of being like, I don't know what's going to happen, you're like, yeah, I think I can do that. Yeah. I guess actually I could kind of, it's kind of an easy question to answer because I could kind of boil it down to one event. Um, oh really? And Perfect. that was, that's good podcasting. Right <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I started climbing a bunch with a, a good friend named Chris Farah. So I quit my job and kind of like lived in the Valley for a couple months, one fall. And that was, that was the same season. I climbed the nose like that shit show situation. And, you know, that was like, I climbed the rostrum that season and Astro man and, you know, like a lot of the 511 classics in the Valley and was kind of just like slowly ticking off the Yosemite tick list. And by the end of the season, I was like, okay, we should, uh, we should go for the Nyad. Um, we should prepare for 20 hours. And I think I brought like, I didn't, I've never even had five hour energy, but I'd purchased five hour energy for the Nyad that we brought with us. And we had like a backpack (laughs) Filled with tons of water and snacks. Literally from the counter at 7-Eleven, because that's where it usually is. I, is it's I don't like even... sitting in a little rack at, at like the K, Circle K or whatever. Yeah, I don't even I, I don't, don't know what remember. this shit is, but the truckers love it. Yeah, dude, they do. They really do. It's crazy, like how many energy drinks you see like that community consumes. It's oh, yeah, of, totally. It's nuts. Um, we uh, like... I don't know. We like kind of planned out the Nyad via over a topo and we're like, okay, like, well, you know, I'll do, I was going to do the first two thirds up to the great roof, which is like the first half in duration for most people. And we got a bunch of beta from, from some friends who'd done it in the past. And I remember like, you know, reading like Hans Florian's like, you know, beta and just trying to get as much information as I could. And then we went for it and it took us eight hours. Um, so it was kind of we were like genuinely confused. We like finished the Nyad at like two PM or something, and we're like, You're like "Now what do we do?" We're like, "We could <laughs> we, we joke we're like we we should go do half dome right now, like because we were we were chilling, like it was not that bad at all. Like we were we had tons of energy left, and, and you know we went we went down and we didn't do half dome, but it just it felt I was like this is actually kind of chill. And then we came down and everyone's like, "Whoa!" Like that was really fast and. 
we were like, cool, I guess, I guess so. And that was kind of like the moment where I realized like, oh, actually we're, I think like Chris and I are pretty, pretty decent at climbing and like, maybe we could <laughs> do some cool stuff. And, uh, yeah. And then Chris is, Chris has probably been, I've probably climbed with that dude more than any other partner, um, to date. And we've, we've climbed a ton all over the world in Kyrgyzstan and Spain and Jordan and Patagonia, uh, and you know, like our first trip, my first trip down to Patagonia, we, we showed up in El Shelten and, um, we like thought it'd be a good idea to go, go for Cerro Shelten or Fitzroy right off the bat as our first climb. And we did that together. And that was, that was pretty, that was kind of an epic, but yeah, that was kind of the moment like that. Nyad really, I guess, told us that we, I guess we're, we're able to do, do cool big wall things and, you know, not necessarily just like do historically what, what most weekend warriors could do. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating because it's like that, that sort of has to happen to you. And it's funny you say that because I was thinking about trying to formulate some question that, that basically crystallized what you just said of like, when do you like look up at these things and go, yeah, that, that'll be kind of no big deal. Or that, you know, is I'm completely capable of that as opposed to like someday, you yeah. know, and, and I actually, you know, I have this kind of weird thing that I can point to where I had climbed a bunch in the Fisher Towers and, and that's where I learned to aid climb really. Um, I messed around here or there, but, um, and, and we're talking like my late teens, early twenties, 19 years old, 20 years old. And then, you know, those few years right in there. And I was there with, um, a fairly famous climber, um, Rob Slater, who, mm -hmm. um, died on K2, but was an awesome, amazing rock climber. And, and you probably know his name from El Cap and stuff. Um, totally. Wyo Sheep Ranch was one of his his crazy roots and things yeah, like that. Yeah, I don't so, have any interest to repeat that thing. <laughs> right. But he was sitting around and, and I was like talking, we were at a, a campfire actually in the Fisher Towers and, you know, they'd seen what I was doing. I was soloing something at that point and, and I was like kind of grumbling about, I wanted to go to Yosemite. I had never been to Yosemite and I'm like, yeah, I want to, I want to try to solo the, uh, I want to try to solo Zodiac. And he like almost burst out laughing. You know, like, he's like, you are like, no, you don't bother with Zodiac. Like what you're doing here is way more gnarly than like any, anything you're going to find on the Zodiac. Totally. And I was just like, are you really seriously? He's like, yeah, I don't do the Zodiac. He's like, that's like basic <laughs> shit, you know? And, you know, I remember like that was sort of a, a, you know, I, that was your I turning late, point. Yeah. Yeah. Not like that moment, but I later, later, like quickly his words were rang true um, as I, as I did go to Yosemite and climb some walls and I was like, Oh yeah, he's right. Like this is way more chill than, than banging like pins in the mud. Like he was spot on. And that was like the combination of the two things of his words and my realization of being like, Oh, I could, I can climb a four here. I can climb a five here. Like this is, you know, and, and again, like sitting in the meadow or whatever and thinking, looking up and thinking, I can do that is a big moment. And, and also like, it's not bravado, but it's like a moment of sort of somewhat self-assurance that, you know, cause obviously some knucklehead can get out of his van and be like, yeah, I can do this. Like no problem. Like, you know, I can do this sort of freehand and climbing, whatever they do up here. 
but like an actual like feeling of like, yeah, I think I've got this. And it's not like something you announce to the world, but it's something that you sort of feel inside. Yeah. Um, and it, and it is a springboard to do for you. It certainly was a springboard to, to sort of launch this kind of series of, you know, rad shit. And I mean, when you, when you went and climbed, uh, down there and you said the first thing you did was, was climb Cerro Shaltan, uh, I mean, were you successful? Uh, yeah, we, we just barely, but yeah, we were, it was like, we had this pretty much a one day weather window, kind of like maybe Mm -hmm. one and a half, two day weather window. And we, we were total noobs. We didn't really like in hindsight, it was maybe not the, the smartest decision to go for that. The needle. Yeah. A little bit, but yeah, we showed up there and, um, hiked into Paso Superior, which is one of the, one of the camps and yeah, we just went for it in a day from Paso Superior. And we we woke up the morning, actually. We kind of like hiked in with a little bit of sickness. And we woke up that morning and we're both like, we for sure have COVID, like 100%. And At we, least both of us have it. Yeah, and we did. <laughs> we we joked we joked that we had the, the first COVID ascent of, of Fitzroy. <laughs> but then I think uh, Rolo, Rolo, Rolo later told us that, that someone else had had done a COVID ascent to Fitzroy the previous season, but oh, damn. <laughs> but yeah, it was uh it was like it was pretty real. I mean, I remember we like I I'm not an ice climber. I'd climbed a little bit in highlight to prepare for Patagonia intentionally. And you know, I feel like if you if you climb five twelve, you could like pretty much climb water ice five. But it's not, you know, it takes a little bit of time to feel comfortable in that terrain. And I, I had a lot of ski knowledge, so I felt pretty comfortable in snow and ice in general, but I definitely am I don't consider myself a dialed, a dialed alpine climber or dialed ice climber. The approach was like 60 degree ice. And I think everyone just goes and sama climbs it or like solos it. And we, we fully pitched it out and we had four ice crews. So we had like two ice crews for the anchor and then I'd run out the entire pitch and then build another anchor and bring up Chris. <laughs> and then we ended up bootying an ice crew in the middle. There was just a random ice crew that was like in the, on the ice slope. And so I was like, hell yeah, I have like one piece of protection. <laughs> And so, yeah, that was like, that felt super real. And then I got on the first pitch and I was all psyched on free climbing. We were climbing the, the, uh, the Franco Argentina, which goes at like five eleven minus or something like that. And I'm like, oh, we could totally free climb this. This will be like, you know, piece of cake. We're good climbers. And I'm on the first pitch and I'm just like climbing through ice. Like the whole, the whole crack is just covered in ice. And I'm like in the middle of the pitch, like ice is falling on me from above the mountain. And I was like, this is gnarly. Like this is so full on. And I freed that pitch. It was 10 B and I was so proud, like so proud of that. And, you know, I think like two pitches later, there was some five, nine chimney thing that was just like covered in ice. And, you know, I like pulled on, pulled on gear and there was like a fixed rope to get, to get past that section. It's like, you don't even care about free climbing at a certain point. So that was like a really serious introduction to Patagonia. And, um, I kind of just fell in love with it after that point. But to go back to what you were chatting about earlier, I think I also had had kind of a similar experience as you in the Fisher Towers where I was climbing a bunch in the valley and suddenly at a certain point, everything just felt like it got smaller. You know, like the idea Mm. of going to do Zodiac in multiple days, like that sounded absurd. Like at a certain point, I was like, oh, why would I do that when I could just do it in like 10 hours or whatever? And I think it just came from experience and doing a bunch of walls and going to like my first big trip into the mountains was Alaska. And when I went up there, I was super intimidated, got incredibly humbled, bailed off a bunch of stuff, 
didn't finish a bunch of routes and um had an amazing time and we ended up i think we summited like four things that trip but um tried like way more and got pretty humbled but i remember going back to yosemite after that alaska season and looking up at all the walls and being like whoa everything's so small here it just changes your perspective and then the more time you spend in those ranges the smaller the smaller yosemite gets so you know we've been talking about all these successes or barely successes but still successes and you were you were just talking about climbing you know these first pitches on um el shal 10 and you know being like i don't I'm way out of my element or whatever, but tell me about, uh, uh, we've set up this engineering brain, so to speak, uh, or at least a combo that, that one, one big part of it is an engineering brain. Like what does retreating look like for you? What is, what is making that call look like? Because I think it's, it's this moment of, um, revelation that like, we don't really talk about that much in media, but like specifically the moment of, retreat at the moment of deciding the moment of communicating that to your partner you know i've got a couple stories where we were both thinking about how we didn't want to be there anymore but nobody was no one was saying it out loud yeah yeah and because they didn't want to be the one yeah and as soon as i said it like the other person's like hell yeah like let's get yeah on the painted the painted wall is what i'm thinking of in 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 uh trying to climb the serpent on the painted wall and as soon as i like squeaked out that I wanted to go down. My buddy was like, oh yeah, I've been thinking about that for like two pitches. Let's get the fuck out of here. You know, but neither one of us wanted to like pull the ripcord. So you tell me about your thought process or, or an example of like where it was time and, and what told you that. Yeah. Wait, first is the serpent wall. Is that some hard aid route on the painted wall? I, I'm no, guessing. it's, it was, it was past tense of free route. Oh, um, so it fell off or something. Yeah. Uh, like a pitch and a half of it fell off. And it Whoa. hasn't, I don't think anyone's ventured up there again to see what, I think it's just raw, nasty rock that's in between those pitches now. So, but Contact. yeah, and not long after we tried it, actually, it was yeah, kind of that, part of our story of like both of us feeling like everything seemed really weird. Something, something's going to happen soon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, like, I mean, it seems maybe in retrospect, but we were both just like, this all just seems like really intense pressurized so to speak yeah but um but yeah i mean i think i've told the story on here but yeah a couple the next season a couple friends uh went down and then got in touch with me because they went up and like there was just debris and it was all fucked and they were like (sighs) went down and then it actually was bean bowers who was also a a, yeah kind of notable patagonia climber who died of cancer but he yeah he he was like messaged me he's like i think the whole thing fucking fell off i'm like yeah i think it and the other thing he told me that was really interesting is he said that he was like reaching behind flakes and he would he was saying how he felt like like an animal or something was in there like breathing on his hand like there was heat coming out of the wall um, on the the approaching up to there yeah it was really trippy it was like really a little trippy, warning, but, like don't don't go further. <laughs> yeah, don't go further. But anyhow, so so uh, I don't know how we got on that tangent. Yeah. What were well, we talking about? I think we were talking oh, about, you asked retreat, me about the serpent. Re- retreat, retreat, yeah. retreat. Yeah, and the retreat. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I guess I feel like in general, I I guess earlier earlier on in my climbing career, I was pretty motivated to not bail, and for some reason, like in general, I I didn't. I'd be like, cool. Like we're we're like you know, maybe this, we're struggling to do this and like things aren't going well, but I think we could still make it happen and 
push through and get up the wall. Like I, I feel like so many people bail because they just have like, I think a lot of it's mental, not mm. necessarily like they convince themselves that there's some reason that they need to bail when, you know, they don't necessarily need to bail. And then as I've climbed more, uh, I think my bail mentality has evolved quite a lot. Um, <laughs> and yeah, now I, I bail. like it. The bail I, mentality. Yeah. My bail mentality. Now I bail for mostly mental reasons. Like, you know, there's tons of times where I theoretically could go higher up, but I don't want to, or my partner doesn't want to. And I feel like it's generally better to, to choose the more conservative option and go down if your partner's not psyched. But I could name one climb specifically. There's this route, there's this, uh, this route called the Cobra pillar. It's on Mount. I think I'm, I'm going to botch this, but I want to say like Mount Burrill or something like that. It's a, uh, it's in the Ruth Gorge in Alaska. Mm-hmm. And I was climbing with my buddy Ema. Um, and I think the route had been done once before or twice before in a day by Chris McNamara. And I think the, the guidebook author of Alaska climbing, I think it's like, it's like Puyer, Joe, Joseph Puyer maybe. And yeah, they climbed the thing in a day and I just finished like a Yosemite season where I I climbed like a ton of El Cap routes in a day. And we were, we were both pretty cocky. Um, and we're like, oh yeah, this will be like super chill to do. No problem. We'll like, you know, it's 3000 feet. We could easily do this in a day. It's goes free at five eleven, No problem. And we started the day and my buddy fell into, into a crevasse like pretty immediately on the approach. And he, we were unroped. It was like right when we ditched, we like decided to, we were roped up for most of the crevasse stuff. And there was just this one section where like, oh yeah, this looks pretty chill. And he like fell in. It wasn't, it wasn't big. He just fell into his waist. And that was like a little bit of a spooky situation. And then we started climbing and it was like one of the worst routes I've ever climbed in regard to rock in regard to <laughs> rock quality. Like I, I think I led, I was leading, I led like then another first like five, six, seven pitches or whatever. And I remember finishing my block so relieved. I was like, whoa, like, thank God I'm done. That was like so gnarly and not fun. And I was super gripped and not having that much fun. And then my buddy took over and then I took back over, climbed a few more pitches and we got like two thirds of the way up pretty, pretty fast. It was like before 3 p.m. We had tons. I mean, there's unlimited daylight left. We had tons of food, tons of water all the gear we needed we were feeling like physically fit and we were on top of that ledge and i was just like dude i i am like not psyched like that was so scary i i feel like i'm gonna die or like you know it it wasn't that extreme but i was just like like it felt too dangerous for me it felt like it was too loose and i was uncomfortable and uh i think my buddy we were just like we don't get paid for this like we're we're going down and we I remember like it was just this crazy emotion as soon as I decided as soon as we decided that we were going to go down I was so happy like something just a switch flicked in my brain and suddenly I was like whoa now I'm having fun and we like repelled down it was like a blast repelling down and we were just chatting about what we were making for dinner that night and we rolled into the Ruth Gorge with like we brought a a 20 a a, what is it like a, a five gallon 20 pound propane tank and a car camping stove and like fresh produce, like tons of really, really, really good food. And I think most people go in there and they're just eating freeze dried meals, but we, we were eating like, right. you know, avocados for breakfast every morning with like super, super nice food. And yeah, that, that was like, I was just stoked to get down to the kitchen tent and make good dinner that night. And 
I think, <laughs> yeah, I think as I've progressed in climbing, I've been way more willing to bail and like way more okay with it. And now I bail, I don't know, semi-regularly if, I, if I'm not stoked or my partner's not stoked or, you know, you're not feeling it. Like, it's just, it's totally fine. Actually, the last, the last thing I climbed with Amity, we were both, we were on the south side of Half Dome and we were trying to climb this big route in a day. And, uh, we got, I think like six pitches from the summit and we both were like, are you stoked? The answer was no mutually. And we're like, let's just go down, you know, like kind of just left our egos there and decided to head down and got back at a reasonable hour and just made for a better day. Yeah. Isn't it maybe an effect of like when you're starting out climbing, first of all, you feel as though you're like creating, even if it's completely imaginary, like where do I fit into this whole pecking order of climbing? Yeah. But also like you feel like, you know, you're desperate for each climb is like, I don't know how to express this. It's like, you're going to run out of time. Like this is all, I have to keep climbing every minute of every day. And that kind of like mellows out a little bit to where you realize like, I'll be back. And actually, I think, you know, what you're talking about in the Ruth Gorge is really interesting because going on a big trip where you've spent a shitload of money, you put all this time in to bring all that food in and everything else. Like that adds this weird little pressure. And I, every expedition climber I've ever talked to can, can talk about this of like, you know, I've spent this amount of money and, and Alaska is kind of a middle level version of that versus like the Karakoram or something like that. But I've mm-hmm. spent all this money, all this time. This is my shot taking time off my, my wife or husband or whoever is like expecting me home. Like, there's some pressure there too, but when you're living in the middle of like a climbing life, you can be like, yeah, I'm good. I can come back or I can do this another time or I can go on to the next route. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah. I, I definitely evolved to that person. I mean, I think, I think when like a lot of people, when they start climbing, they're just like, oh my gosh, like this, like, I mean, at least for me, I was like, I want to climb as many pitches as I can every day not bail on not bail off anything and i want to be successful and you know it's definitely an ego thing i think like a lot of climbers at the start suffer from you know just trying to like be successful and be at the start in the middle yeah 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 Yeah. for sure actually (laughs) no doubt um but i think i think definitely i had i had a problem with that at the start of climbing um and yeah and now now i think it's like I I'm totally like some, there's some days where I'm like, cool, I'm going to go climb one pitch or two pitches and go hang out with my friends and be happy. And there's some days where some places where I like, I feel the spark and I'm like, I want to climb as many routes as I can. And I want to do this really big thing. And I'm super excited, but I definitely, I definitely have chilled out for sure. And, um, I feel a little bit less, I don't know, maybe some of the spark is gone. My initial stoke that I had is like a little, has quelled a little bit, but I'm pretty happy. So, don't say it no i mean no it's i'm still insanely stoked i love climbing and like you know i will be a climber my whole life and i like love it but i don't i don't feel you know i just i don't feel the urge to to spend every second of my day climbing so james lucas we were just having a conversation uh not too long ago and uh about a, a climber i was actually kind of curious about interviewing and he brought up this word or this phrase the turbo gumby and uh which i asked him actually to define um but ever since he defined it i've been thinking about this idea of the turbo gumby and it's it's such an apt i've just been like rolling it around in my head and it's like there is this phase in climbing where 
that's what is driving you. You're like, you're, you don't know what you're doing really. Yeah. You are on the edge of like what's safe likely, you know, but you're just like, you can't stop and you won't stop. And you have to get through this phase of where everything is pretty ego driven. You know, you want to like climb the hard shit because you read about it and this person did it and it seems so rad and it's just out of your grasp. And like, there's this point at which you kind of come over this hump and like it, you're still stoked, but it's like a little more calculated. It's a little more simmering almost. And you also realize that like expending energy in all different directions is a little bit of a waste so to speak. It's like a power leak kind of kind of thing. But the turbo gumby phase is really interesting to me. And I, I gotta like credit James with that phrase. And again, what he he said it was and what I've kind of rolled around in my head, I can't quite define it yet. But there is this moment where you're just like scattered and shooting at everything and like give me everything and I'll climb it and I don't care if I'm about to die and all these sorts of things. And it like you have to get through that phase or you might die kind of a thing. Yeah, I I was totally a turbo gumby. I think you just <laughs> I mean it sounds like it, the way you climb the nose and shit was <laughs> yeah. complete turbo gumby style. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like but I I think I think the turbo gumby is is like the right I think it's a really good place to be when you're starting out as a mm-hmm. climber. I think it teaches you a lot. But yeah. Yeah, I definitely for sure I was I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I, I had mm-hmm. some level of idea just based upon the reading and video watching I'd been doing, but, but yeah, I definitely am a change climber for the better and right. like way safer. And I've definitely gotten way more conservative with my climbing. Um, I mean, I used to never like repelling with a Prusik was like a crazy concept. You know, you do, you do all these things cause you're like, Oh, I need to go faster and take all these shortcuts. And you know, now it's like, you know, you become more dialed and you just realize that a lot of those shortcuts aren't worth taking uh, or maybe just get way faster and you realize that like the, the small time it takes to do something way a little bit safer is just like way way more worth way more worth the the time it takes what about confronting your mortality you haven't been climbing that long but you spent some seasons in patagonia and and therefore you've probably been down there for some of the the things that have happened in the last few years for me, that's, that's a, a phase or that's a thing, uh, a crossing of the threshold, you know, to use the, the hero journey archetype for most climbers who, who stay in the game and get into the Alpine, the confronting your mortality, whether it's immediate close call for you or, or, or something close to you or just being around it. Can you, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Yeah. It's been, it's definitely been one of the center, I guess, center, like, you know, I've probably thought about that a lot the last, the last year or so since I've been down to Patagonia, I had a pretty close friend die down there my first season, a dude named John Bolte, and we had climbed a bunch together in the Sierras and in Sequoia National Park and in Yosemite. And um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think part of me you know, pre John Bolte dying, I think part of me was kind of like, oh yeah, I'm invincible, you know, not necessarily invincible, but I, I was always super calculated. Like I, and I, and I still am, I really pride myself on being like very, very good at being able to like assess risk, um, in general. And, 
I mean, that's the reason why I think I've been <clears throat> like interested in going to Patagonia and like relatively successful there um, is because I'm able to assess risk pretty well. But I, yeah, I guess I had this like pretty naive, naive thought process where I'm like, okay, if I, you know, if I, if I keep my shit together and I assess risk and make good conservative decisions in the mountains, I will live. Um, and that's kind of, that was my train of thought for a long time. And then, uh, yeah. And then Bolte died and he died like pretty much making all the right decisions and just the rock came out of nowhere and hit him in the head and killed him instantly. And that really shifted my, uh, my whole thought paradigm pretty, pretty heavily because then I came to the conclusion that you could make all the right decisions and you could be super dialed. But if you're in certain environments, you know, there's objective hazard that you can't control that can kill you. And, uh, yeah, honestly, I've been struggling to figure out where I stand with that because I'm not the type of climber who's down to just like string it out and just go for it. Like whether it's in Yosemite climbing some run out slab or in Patagonia, like I, I'm like, I calculate those decisions like obsessively before I, before I go for them. And yeah, I decided to go down to Patagonia for a second season and another guy I knew, uh, who, who, uh, was from Argentina, this dude named Marcos. He like, I like arrived in shell 10 day one and was like hitchhiking to the trailhead and he picked me up and. I had, I had known him from the last season and we messaged back and forth on, uh, on Instagram a bunch of times over the years. And, you know, like a couple weeks later he died, random rock fall. And, uh, yeah. And then I had this like pretty serious Epic with Colin Haley climbing on Sarah shell 10. And it kind of just made me realize that I maybe need to chill out a little bit. Uh, and, like, you know, I don't think that any, like, I don't think I made any decisions in climbing that were super reckless or like, you know, I definitely have, I've made decisions that were not necessarily the right ones, but in general, I don't think I've made any incredibly poor decisions, but it just made me realize, I don't know, all those events made me realize that going down there is definitely, you know, really honestly, not just Patagonia. I think, I think Patagonia is actually starting to get kind of a bad rap like more more so than it deserves i think you find the same risks in in chamonix uh i mean similar risks and you know similar risks in alaska and the karakoram it's really just it's these glaciated regions that are heating up and the mountains are falling apart because the permafrost layers and the cracks are melting and uh as you know as their climate warms like mountains fall apart and that's just the cycle that we're in and patagonia is very much in the middle of that cycle so yeah, I think I think uh I've confronted my mortality a little bit the last year and I decided not to go down to Patagonia the coming year. I know myself and I'll probably I'll probably go down there again. Um I I love that place. It has a special place in my heart and the community down there is is really incredible. Uh the scene is amazing. The climbing is like my favorite style of climbing by far. And I genuinely do think there there are ways to go down there and climb relatively safely with you know minimizing objective hazard to some degree depending on the objective you choose yeah however i think confronting my mortality has been has been tricky and i'm honestly not sure where i land on it to date first of all sorry to blindside you with that <laughs> no you're good um i wasn't fishing i i i didn't know if if you'd been involved with anything very closely or not but like i said certainly when you start to confront yourself 
sorry, certainly when you start to confront that climbing and everything else, you're going to start to start to understand it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating because you, you just simply have to have a level of audaciousness to do what you do. And we who are in it, you know, kind of laugh about how, you know, people who don't climb are just like, Oh my God, you guys are amazing. You know? And, and we're just like sport climbing somewhere. And you're like, yeah, yeah. this is no big yeah, deal. Totally. But, but it's all part of a system that we have to sort of whistle past the graveyard and in the sense of like, yeah, we, you know, it's not going to happen to me or like, I'm not climbing those routes, but we all, and I say we, because, you know, I, I played the game on the big aid routes and all that sort of stuff where, you know, I just, Joked. I mean, literally, one of the things that have made me famous is joking yeah, yeah. about the bullshit around. But it's also like, even in that video, I said, yeah, but I was scared and I was doing it. And I'm not like, I wasn't joking about it while I was doing it because it's fucking dangerous. And so like the aid rant itself is almost like that. Like I'm making fun of it because I don't want to admit that at any moment I probably could have fucked, you know, there was a quarter inch of granite that was between me and, and decking and dying, you know? And so it's like, it's, 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 yeah, it's part of maturing. It's part of, to be honest with you, it's part of a long career as an alpinist. And and I'm going to say you're an alpinist, you know, you're, you're primarily this rock climber, but you, you play in these alpine uh, environments. You have to go through that. You have to confront it. Or, you know, the uh, being in a, a world of denial is is like a painfully dangerous place to be, you know. And I think Colin understands that because we just talked to Colin on the runout. Sounds like you're becoming, you know, into this world of understanding that. And you're right; you will probably go back, um, but you're going to make this mental shift, and you're going to arrive a slightly different different person. Than you did that first time when you and your buddy just said, "Yeah, fuck it, we're gonna climb El Shaltan," and you got away with it. Yeah, to a degree. I mean, I think I <laughs> yeah. wouldn't. I wouldn't. I would say that we, like, you know, we we kept our margins in a right in a place cool. where we were relatively, we felt relatively safe, and you know, if something went wrong, we could have, I don't know, hopefully gotten our way out of it. I wouldn't say it was too reckless, but mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, actually, climbing with Colin was like pretty. I mean, the dude, that dude is freaking dialed and uh mm-hmm. that was like a really cool learning experience mostly you know to see him climb but also just to kind of like see his approach and he is super safe like very conservative you know like he he i remember we were climbing he called me out on one of my anchors it was like a bomber bolt in a in a single piece and he's like oh man i didn't it, like your piece wasn't perfect and like i don't like mm-hmm. you know like yeah and i was like whoa like yeah hell yeah like good for you for calling me out you know and (laughs) and uh yeah he's just it kind of made me realize that you know you if you want to play in that environment you you really have to keep your shit together like you you have to keep everything super tight and uh you can't mess around and you know like you have to be willing to take on some objective risk no doubt but um Mm -hmm. i do think there is a way to play around in the alpine and kind of like keep risk at an acceptable level but um i'm i'm still kind of learning on mm-hmm. how to do that uh i guess i'm just yeah i'm just like deciding with my i don't know figuring out my own limits and risk tolerances and um i've i've been pretty comfortable with all the things i've done thus far but i think um yeah we'll see i kind of have 
a little bit of time to think about it till till I head out there next. This is just a nuts and bolts question. Like, how do you afford your rock and roll lifestyle? To, uh, <laughs> to quote Cake. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like, a- what did you do for three years or four years while you were doing this? I, I understand you're working now. Um, you've got. Uh, are you still doing the van build out um, no. company? Are you doing tiny homes? What What's your deal now? Yeah, I. So essentially, I worked for three years, and the whole time, even before I started climbing, I knew I was going to take take a bunch of time off like my whole objective was to get my my pe my professional engineering license to be a certified civil engineer and i was like cool i'll get i'll get my license and then travel the world for a year so the whole time right when i started working i just was like saving up as much as i could and i lived super frugally in san francisco and paid like pretty cheap rent relative to san francisco and so i had a decent savings and essentially had enough to live for a year and a half on the road um, and then honestly, COVID happened and I raked in that unemployment money and really took advantage of that, even though I'd quit my job. That's like the old, old British dole thing, you know, like yeah. the dole that, that was funding like the entire climbing scene in the seventies and not in Oh, interesting. In England, I haven't heard of that. So, yeah. Yeah. What's yeah. The, yeah. Cause it's, you dole? know, it's more of a welfare state. It was the basically unemployment. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. And you barely had to like prove anything. Yeah. yeah it's super it was, famous. It was crazy. I mean, yeah. I, I like, cause I had a, I had a well-paying, I had a pretty well-paying job. Like I wasn't ever in tech, so I didn't like, I wasn't super well-paid, but I, you know, I wasn't a civil engineer. And, and, uh, so when COVID came around, I got like the maximum amount, you know, of unemployment for over a year or whatever it was. And that was like, you know, I'm living in a van, not paying rent, living super cheap. And that that kept me going for a super long time and then i sold my van for a pretty a pretty sweet profit and then used that money to start the van business and then i like i i guess i've i've had this interest to like yeah build build a tiny home company i'm kind of have i have this idea uh trying to start a business to essentially create like a unique way for people to live in mountain towns i feel like like creating these like tiny home communities with communal living spaces would be like a really cool way and more affordable for young people to live in the mountains. And so I've been like slowly working towards it. And so, yeah, did the, did the van thing, built six vans, sold them all and made a little bit of money on that. Not as much as we were hoping, but, uh, that was a pretty like cool experience with my buddy Matt's and, and now, uh, the, the dude who used to run the company I worked for that like modular company in the Bay area he's kind of like mentoring me to be a, he's an engineer, a general contractor, real estate developer. And so, um, I'm about to get my general contractor's license. Uh, and yeah, essentially he's like teaching me how to build. So we're working on building a tiny home community in Truckee. It's like a pretty slow process, but, um, I'm working on some projects for him in the Bay area, uh, kind of like managing them. And then, um, we're also trying to get this tiny home thing going through. So it's pretty cool. Essentially. I'm like, signed up to work for a year i technically work for myself so it's like relatively flexible and uh it's kind of cool like i i've been i've been pretty stoked on my job it's been it's actually kind of fun and i'm learning a ton and just this dude's like kind of been an awesome guy to work with and um he's just teaching me a lot and yeah it's been good it's kind of it's kind of fun i like was worried about going back to work and was look i spent my entire spring looking for jobs and wasn't really sure what i was going to do and this kind of just fell into my lap and it's been working out pretty good. So I, I you know, I, I asked Amity actually that, you know, I've been thinking about her interview 
in, in reference to you and, and climbing with her. And, you know, I asked her like, why, are, why bother being, being sponsored? And, you know, <laughs> she had a really good explanation. Um, but literally during this, this conversation, I was like, man, I got to double check. Like while you're talking, I went back and looked at your Instagram and I'm like, no, nope, I don't see any, like, you know, the whole thing where in your profile, you've got all your sponsors and everything else. and <laughs> Supported it, it, by it, all these people. Yeah, yeah, right. And and it's interesting because your, you know, your YouTube channel, you know, I think despite your efforts probably, you know, has an incredible following. Um, I've gotten so many requests to have you on the show. I think partially because you're probably a bit of an enigma to a lot of people. You know, this guy who's like out there doing these incredible things and putting up these videos and, but we don't know too much about him. So what about that path? Like, you know, you certainly have the acumen if you wanted to, to sort of spread your resume around the halls of, of the outdoor industry, you know, and, and I'm super cynical about it. So it's not like <laughs> you have to justify why you're not doing it, but what, what about in your mind about like whether you could be supported by a, a company out there in the world? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, I've thought about this quite a lot. It's it's something mm-hmm. that definitely pops That's up. That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's coming to the I point. I imagine that you have. <laughs> I have, for sure. And a, like most of my climbing partners these days, like on these bigger trips, they're all fully sponsored athletes. And like, it's it's funny when I'm down in, when I'm down in, when I was down in El Shaltan this past season climbing, like there's a huge, you know, European contingency and you know, people from foreign countries and they're just like, oh, like, who is your, who is your shoe sponsor? Who is your, like, who is your outerwear sponsor? Like, like, and I'm like, I don't have any. Um, You're like, I pay for these, Bicho. Like, this is mine. (laughs) Yeah. But I, I have been super lucky that. You got to have some bros with the pro deal. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I definitely, I definitely hit up friends for pro deals and have a couple of my own, but, but no, I, I have been super lucky um, to have some of my trips supported. So like, I went down to Cochimo last year with like Bronwyn and Hayden and mm-hmm. my friend Danford. And, you know, th- that was like supported by Rab. And then like, I'll note that that film just came out too. Yeah. It's so a sick anybody, film. Anybody wants to check that yeah, out. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone Pico should floor. check it out. I'm actually, yeah. I like spent the first like half of the trip, like helping to put up that route. Uh, and then, and then like went to Shelton and then like the Jaren, the dude who filmed the whole video came in. So I'm not in the video at all, but, uh, oh which is like totally fine, but it was just like, yeah, it's a really good video. Um, your sponsored, your, your supposed sponsors would have been pissed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> good thing I don't have any. Um, yeah. Anyway, and, back to the question. But yeah. And then, uh, yeah. So I, I thought about it a bit more, honestly. It's like for a while I was like, cool. I, I'm like for, you know, you like, you have all this self-doubt. You're like, oh, I'm actually not that good. Like I'm not good enough to right. be sponsored. I don't climb that hard, whatever. Uh-huh. And then- <laughs> And then people tell you differently or you're like, you come to this realization, oh, actually, maybe I am. Uh, maybe I should get free trips or get free shoes. Like, you know, like when I was climbing in Yosemite, like when I do climb in Yosemite, I go through a pair of TC Pros in two to three weeks. Like like when I'm climbing every day on, you know, like it's 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 expensive. And yeah, I, I kind of did come to the conclusion that so you're it, saying your footwork's terrible. Yes. It's, no, I'm just no, kidding. Actually, my footwork's, I think I'm, my footwork's pretty good. I'm pretty prideful yeah, no, of my, I'm my, granite, my granite footwork skills. But yeah, when you're like speed climbing El Cap, you go through a parachute yeah. so fast. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I came to the, this conclusion 
initially I was like, oh, I don't really want to be sponsored or like maybe, you know, like give that opportunity to someone else. And um, I have been pretty psyched to get the trip support when you're going down to Patagonia, when you're going on bigger mm-hmm. trips. It's pretty sweet. Um, so, yeah, I kind of like the idea of keeping the situation that I currently have where when I go on a bigger trip or an expedition, um, you know, I can get support for that. And um, I also like. I don't know. I've, I've been definitely particular. I've had certain companies reach out to me like, or, you know, lots of people being like, Hey, like, let me connect you with this company or this company. And honestly, I've been kind of picky and not like super interested in working with all the different companies. I'm not like, yeah, I do have a decent social media. Like people do follow me, but I'm not, I'm not, I don't really like the social media game. And I don't like, I don't even have anything under my name on Instagram. Cause I just don't really know like there's no single line that can describe me so i just don't know what to say <laughs> no there is nothing yeah no i'm aware i'm aware <laughs> of the lack of of again of the lack of sort of personal details <laughs> yeah so i just so i don't know i've had i've had mixed feelings but i i've been um right. i've been yeah luckily patagonia supported my last uh my last trip down to patagonia and i kind of hope that i could potentially work with them in the future but yeah we'll see we'll see where it goes i think I'm a climber and that's my main priority in life, but I also have other interests and I don't really aspire to be like a full-time professional climber that has like, all, you know, like gets all of your income from sponsorships. That's not like the direction I'm trying to head, but I do want climbing to be a big part of my life. And I do think some, some support in that realm would be pretty cool. So yeah, I, I don't know. I have mixed feelings like you. It's like, you know, do you sell out? Do you not sell out? Is it selling out? Is it not selling out? Like it's a it's a funny world. And yeah, it's been kind of interesting to navigate thus far. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not it's not free shoes. You know, it's like you you still work for everything. And yeah, and that's what like it's always been the great myth of 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 like, oh, they're sponsored. Or they get this. And, you know, I've lived through the whole thing where there was a point where free shoes was all sponsorship meant to now, you know, actual paychecks, but it's all work. And so it's just where you want to spend your time and your work, your sort of personal capital, whether it's, you know, being comfortable in your skin as to who you are as a climber and all those sorts of things. And, and also like learning. I mean, like one thing that stuck out with what you just said is, is working with this guy um, that you're working with now, like how much you're learning. And that's, you know, just so important and and again living long enough to see people sort of flame out as sponsored climbers and then what's left kind of thing and um i mean i love a balanced approach and if you can kind of play both sides of the coin and keep everybody happy um it seems to me that that's like the the most appropriate way to go with um with the kind of things that you want to do where you want to choose your expeditions on your personal feelings and not what will make media so to speak yeah totally i i agree i've had that like same that same thought process you know like at, there's a certain point in climbing where i'm like oh i should i should become a guide and like fully dedicate every second of my life to this <clears> endeavor <throat> and then you know i was like okay actually maybe like i do i do genuinely love guiding people and you know do mm-hmm. guide people every once Clearly. in a while <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. put your life at risk yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah. To help old Keith get up, up the <laughs> nose. <laughs> yeah, shut that's, up. that's like first thing on your resume if you ever do apply for a guiding position. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Uh, that would honestly be, yeah, that'd be a good one to put on there. Um, but no, I think 
I think I, yeah, I kind of came to that conclusion for, for a minute. I was like, oh man, I'm like all in on this climbing thing. And now I'm, I'm all in on it, but I also like, I, I have these other like lofty interests and goals and have this passion. Like I'm, I've become super passionate about building. I really enjoy building things and really like, like the idea of like trying to solve the housing crisis in a unique way. And I think, um, I'm like still pretty far from maybe getting to that point, but I'm kind of slowly trying to work my way there. And I think that I have maybe the potential to make a difference. And so it'd be pretty cool to, I don't know, make a little bit of money in that way, in that realm. And then also do some good for the world. That's just, that's outside of climbing, but then also keep this climbing part of my life super close. And, you know, I think we live in a world now where you could choose a bunch of different careers and like not necessarily put a hundred percent of your time into one thing. And so, yeah. Hopefully. Well, it's interesting. There's this myth and I, you know, I made a joke with you when we were texting about your, cause you, I was like, what are you doing these days? Are you going to be, are you going to be stable enough to sit down for an interview? <laughs> and you're like, yeah, I'm working in, in, you know, in Tahoe, like it's chill. And I was like, yeah, what happened to your, your trust fund? And there's this whole myth in climbing about this trust fund thing like that, that there's these great climbers out there who are just like living off a bank account. And it happens, but it, not as much as the joke would imply. Yeah. But then you think about like, well, well, how does a certain person, and you see these people out here in the world who are successful and they seem to have a ton of free time and, you know, they, they, they travel all over the world, whether it's for climbing or anything else. It's like, well, how did they get there? Yeah, some it's family money and they never worked a day in their life, but a lot of them, they took a period of their life and they worked and they worked towards a goal that paid off. And then they realized the dream of of running a company with not maybe as much free time as you wanted, but but with a lot of free time, a lot of flexibility. But there was a period in there where they had to go after this goal. And I appreciate that. And and it sounds like, you know, that may be a horizon that you're looking for is being successful at this thing, this business or whatever, and fitting climbing into it to keep your brain working and your your psych alive for for learning and for climbing and for everything else yeah i think you 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 100 percent figured me out in a way like that's exactly oh, it like, nice. congratulations <laughs> <laughs> it's uh yeah well, it I, took an hour and a half we're good <laughs> yeah it's well it's, it's it's actually super frustrating so i have like i have this youtube channel which is super weird uh to begin with but there's tons of comments there's so many people who are like Oh, like, where do you afford to do this? Like, how do you afford to do this? Do you have a trust fund and all these? And it like, it's really upsets me. I'm like, dude, like going to Kyrgyzstan for one month, like literally all in was under two grand, you know, like, what are you paying rent for a month? Like, you know, like probably two grand living in New York city or San Francisco or something like that. You know, it's, it's like, you know, it, it, you could go on these trips and do it in a pretty dirtbaggy style. Like when we went up to Alaska, we were like hitchhiking and the whole way between Anchorage and Talkeetna and, you know, like staying at random people's houses who we met and yeah, money, money's an interesting one. And I think that like, yeah, I've, I don't know. I've also similar to sponsorship. I've struggled how to like determine that, you know, I've, I definitely have like pressure to make money. A lot of my friends from high school are making like insane amounts of money. And, and I've kind of like come to the conclusion that I don't necessarily need that much. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, you want to be comfortable and, want to be like stable stability is pretty important um i mean that's one of the things like andrew bisharat pointed out to me when we've been talking about dirtbagging is that like that moment of 
dirt bagging, your case, whatever it was, hitchhiking to Talkeetan or whatever, it does teach you, you know, this kind of threshold of like, well, what, what do I really need to survive? You're like me. I was a suburban kid. And so dirt bagging and living like that is clearly a choice. Yeah. You know, it's not like we're living on the street or anything like that. No, but it does not. teach you a bit, even in our little sheltered worlds that we came from. And I'm, I'm kind of guessing at your world, but I did read some stuff about it. So, you know, it does teach us a little bit about like, well, what could we just get by on? And even if it only lasts for a few years. And I think that's an important lesson for anybody, and especially maybe for sheltered kids um, that grew up in a suburban sort of setup or this track towards success, which meant getting a job and all those things that fell apart for you in San Francisco <laughs> the first time around, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. So it's an interesting thing to be presented with that. Like, I can just do this and, and you know, get by. I think the being a dirtbag, you know, and you could call it what you want these days, like living in a living in a pro master is like maybe not being a dirtbag, but right, right. But uh, the, just living a minimalistic lifestyle, uh, being super frugal, going around and climbing, camping all the time, like that way of life, it taught me so much. I mean, it, and like it changed my entire perspective of life uh, for the better. And I think also like, you know, going into the business world too, like starting my own little business, like it teaches you. I think it's like super advantageous on how to be minimalistic and go into life with uh, with like that perspective that you could get by on way less and you don't need all the the fancy things and fancy amenities and you know just be happy with the things that you have or the, the more minimalist things. I think one of the reasons that so many of us love climbing is because we we fit that personality type that is willing to to make do with less and um i think that when you know when you when you like get a taste of that lifestyle i think that you know when you surround yourself by people who live that lifestyle you like get a recognition that it's uh it's like just i don't know it's like an incredible it's an incredible way to live and i it almost bums me out like i see i have all these friends who you know like live in new york city and have never really lived that way or and i yeah i feel like i feel like they're they're missing out. It's such a it's such an incredible experience to to hit the road and live live in the dirt for at least some duration of your life. You know, like you know, more than just a few weeks. It's really it's really healthy for everyone. It like gives them more perspective and makes you realize what's actually necessary. And it's like okay not to have a mattress under your under your body occasionally. And you know, like it's it's just good for people. And I hope more people experience that. But I don't know. I think, I think people, I think in general, I have this theory <laughs> that people strive for, strive for comfort a bit more than they oh, should. Yeah. Absolutely. No, the whole thing is comfort. Yeah. People, the whole thing is comfort and, and avoiding inconvenience. Yeah. People. Like that's the, the entire like Western civilization is that like, did you want to, I mean, I was just watching these people with this motorized paddleboard on, <laughs> on this lake. Of yeah, course, and I was like, "Yeah, that's the thing. paddling really sucked. So why don't you just put a fucking motor on it, and then you don't have to paddle either? You know, it's like let's just like take the inconvenience of paddling away from paddleboarding, and we'll just go boarding. And yeah, that, you know, it's just like kind of that thing. But it's like the dirtbag thing is one thing, and and again, it's it's all like it's all expanded to 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 include like living in a built out van and stuff like that, which obviously the guy and his you know." 
91 Tercel or whatever is going to going to roll his eyes that those people think they're dirt bagging. But but then I thought about like I have this bias obviously anyone who's listening to this podcast. I have this bias towards big route climbing, you know, talking to you about these these big climbs and and wall climbing and things like that. And then it made me think about how like as far as cutting to the bone, you know, when you're climbing in a place like Patagonia, you know, you've got like a few layers of nylon and some goo packets that are are like the line between success, the line between comfort, the line between even sometimes living or dying. It's like cut all the way down sometimes to those few little things. You know, if you've ever been in a tent in a storm, a serious storm, you 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 contemplate the fact that there's like a, a whatever a millimeter of nylon between you and catastrophe. And, and, uh, yeah. And it's it's pretty intense, you know? And that intensity <clears throat> is is I think the essence of it all, really, when it comes down to it, of of feeling like these are these few little things that are between me and and catastrophe. And it feels pretty intense, you know, even on a good day. I mean, I'm not gonna lie, I think part of the appeal of that style of climbing, like for me in particular, I can only speak for myself, but like calculating out exactly what you need to the T, just making sure that you have only what you need, nothing more. And then, you know, doing your, doing your thing and like relying upon every little piece of nylon and not needing any more and maybe being willing to be a little bit uncomfortable or a little bit cold or a little bit wet. Um, but like, you know, calculating it correctly. So you're never too wet or too cold or too uncomfortable. Like hitting that calculation just correctly like that, like that feels so good. I remember, I remember when, uh, (laughs) when Jacob Cook and I climbed the, uh, the Care Bear Traverse, it's like the first half Mm -hmm. of the Fitz Traverse. We brought, I think a 30 liter backpack and a 38 liter backpack. Uh, and that was like a double rack, two ropes, two sleeping bags, a two person tent, sleeping pads, food, ice gear, crampons, you know, all the things for climbing in Patagonia and like a 30 liter and 38 liter pack, you know, and you're like, you know, you're like, you're proud. You're like, wow, this is crazy that we have like four days worth of food and four days worth of gear for like ice and rock climbing. Um, And yeah, you like fit into that small of a, that small of a pack. I mean, shout out to like, you know, quality modern gear for sure. But I think it also just goes to show you that a lot of people don't realize, you know, like, I don't know, these days you see so many people, you know, using their rocky talkies and carrying their backpacks on routes and not to say that those are necessarily a bad thing, but they're not, they're not a necessary thing, you know? And so I think, yeah, it's pretty, it feels pretty cool to be, be a minimalist, but at the same time, it's also super dangerous. And I've learned my lesson uh, quite a few times, actually. Uh, literally on Monday, I was just I was just out of the Hulk and got caught in a pretty serious rainstorm, and like only had a Houdini. And I've been in that scenario so many times, like just rainstorm. All I have is a Houdini. Typically, when I when I climb in Patagonia, I actually don't bring a hard shell, or I haven't, depending on the weather. Um, and yeah, the last time I was up, I was out there uh, with Colin on the east face of of Cerro Shelton. I, I had no hard shell pants no hard shell clothes i was in a mesh a pair of mesh tx2s and it's like fully nuking on us like full patagonia storm and i was like this is not chill uh i'm not gonna do this again 
yeah, you just have to be careful. It's like so addicting and fun to to like, you know, like just thread the needle, but also uh, it's a dangerous game to play and you have to be like very careful with it. I ask people a lot of times how they choose what their objectives are going to be, their their missions, whatever you want to call them, their expeditions. Um, you know, understanding that even with, you know, fully whatever sponsored, supported climbers, you've got time that's of value. You have where are you going to spend your resources? And for the rest of us, there's all these other calculations that are like, well, you know, I have this time off from work. I have this relationship maybe with a non-climber that has to be negotiated for a certain <laughs> amount of time. In my case, I have a family, I have a kid, and a lot of people climb with that. So there's all these ways in which you decide like what is feasible to go and do and where you're going to put your resources. So I kind of have a feeling just from talking to you that a lot of it is about partnerships. A lot of it is about the people who are going. Um, so instead of like giving me the nuts and bolts of that question, maybe and think about this for a minute, could you illustrate uh, one of these trips from the last few years, just hit the nail on the head for, you know, trip that was like fulfilled all the different parts for you that just nailed it. Oh man, that's a, yeah. I mean, honestly, that's an easy question to answer because all of the Great. trips, all of the trips I've been on have been so, I, I feel like I've, it's funny. That's not a good answer though. Uh, well, <laughs> all the trips isn't a good answer. I, so I pick know one. I'll pick one, but so many people, I feel like so many people in climbing complain like, oh man, I can't find a good partner or whatever. And like everyone struggles by that. Right. But recently in the last, you know, it's the last four years of my life, I've, I feel like I have too many good partners. I'm like, oh well, man. Well, look, I remember when I opened this, this podcast almost asking you about what you learned about being a good partner you remember that question yeah, yeah. Like two hours ago yeah totally that is what i'm getting at is that that's not random tyler is that you have whatever your brand might be if you want to use that word <laughs> i don't like that i word. think <laughs> i know but i think people are are either impressed by you in the moment you know whatever it's not random is all i'm getting at Sure. Like don't don't say you've been lucky because you've set yourself up as someone for whom people take one look at and they're like, "Yeah, I'll go. I'll go climbing with that cat." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I guess, if I had to choose a trip, I'd say the last, just the last trip I went on um, to to Torres del Paine. I was with, I was out there with two of my really, two of my best friends, um, Cedar Christensen and Imanol uh, Amundaren. He's he's from the Basque Country, and I've climbed with both those characters pretty extensively i mean emo is my partner in alaska cedar was a partner on my trip to kyrgyzstan both those trips were insanely incredible filled with good people but this last trip uh yeah it was it was i mean it was like it was wild we were out there like on this wall for for uh you're, we climbed 12 days total but you're we committed on the wall for 10 days and we had this insane experience i mean there's a there's a video on youtube you should go check it out uh i'm actually kind of kind of proud of it but it was wild living on the side of a wall in the snow and the rain every day trying to free climb and like crazy temperatures with the mountain kind of potentially falling apart beside you and dealing with the like the insanely complicated logistics of bringing bringing up um like all the gear required in that environment it was just it was just like the pinnacle of big wall climbing for me like 
and also like the other thing so many people like think oh yeah you're like you're free climbing the whole time but when you when you big wall free climb you actually end up doing a lot of aid climbing because you know there's like certain pitches that you have to maybe pull through before the, the conditions are right to free climb whether it's on el cap because of some sun or whatever or in patagonia because the pitch is literally a waterfall but yeah that experience was like just so wild and um you connect with your your partners on a totally different level and like you know i know cedar and emo on like yeah i like got a super deep level and they'll be they'll be like really good friends for for life for sure um and I guess I should mention food is like a super important thing for me. And whenever I've gone on climbing trips, that's always been a centerpiece. And that trip in particular, we we thought we'd be a little bit crazy. And we brought a cast iron Dutch oven up on the wall and baked like empanadas and muffins and pizzas pretty much every day while we were up there. And it's all about keeping the, the psych high and keeping Mm -hmm. things happy, you know, and that's, that's like, that's how good partnerships are able to (laughs) like, I guess, persist to a degree, you know, if you're like, if you're like, Oh man, I really want to send this piss pitch and I'm going to be in a bad mood till I do like that's, you know, no one's going to have a good time. But if you're just like, yo, like I just climbed a waterfall and I'm like borderline hypothermic and I'm like, need to come down right now and get into my sleeping bag. And your homie like made you spent like five hours making like empanadas the whole, the whole day while you were like climbing a waterfall. Like that's just, that's like, that's happiness right there. All right, folks, thanks for listening. And thanks to Tyler for connecting, connected so astutely. He sent out these directions. When I send mics out, I actually sent him a mic. And he followed them to the T because he's an engineer. And it was lovely. It was nice Um, that someone could follow some directions to get it done. Anyway, if you want to find out more about Tyler, of course, he's over there on YouTube. You can just search Tyler Caro. He's over there on Instagram. And a lot of content that he puts out, again, for for someone who's not a professional climber, he just puts it out to spread the joy. And that's a nice way to use social media. All right, folks, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, I hope it's cooling off a little bit for you. End of August, moving into September. September actually doesn't get that cool here in Colorado anymore. Alas. But if you're out there waiting for those cool temps, take those sweaty eyeballs Look down at your crotch, look down at your friend's crotch, and check your knots. Would you walk us through a typical day for you? Yeah. Great. Well, I generally come in at least 15 minutes late. Uh, I use the side door. That way lumber can't see me. <laughs> and uh, after that, I just sort of space out for about an hour. Uh, space out? Yeah. I just stare at my desk. But it looks like I'm working. I do that for uh, probably another hour after lunch, too. I'd say in a given week, I probably only do about 15 minutes of real, actual work. 